Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures again with us as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Kingdom of God. We've been talking about the need for the restoration of hope in the Christian Church. And I was quoting from the commentary on the Book of Romans by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who complains that we have completely ignored the inducement to good living and Christian living in the present, the inducement given us by the hope set before us in the gospel, and that hope is that we Christians are going to rule on the earth at the second coming. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, I quote, We shall dwell in glorified bodies on the glorified earth. This is one of the great Christian doctrines that has been almost entirely forgotten and ignored. Unfortunately, the Christian church, and I speak generally, does not believe this, says Martin Lloyd-Jones, and therefore does not teach it. It has lost its hope, and this explains why it spends most of its time in trying to improve life in this world, in preaching politics. But then Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say this, something remarkable is going to be true of us according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 1-3. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law in front of the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints are going to rule the world? This is Christianity, says Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is the truth by which the New Testament church lived. It was because of this that they were not afraid of their persecutors. This was the secret of their endurance, their patience, and their triumphing over everything that was set against them. That was a quotation from Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on the book of Romans. Now, his point is entirely a valid one. We have abandoned the Christian hope by substituting for the concrete messianic Hebrew hope a vague ethereal prospect of disembodied life, survival at the moment of death. This has nothing whatsoever to do with what Jesus promised as the objective of the Christian faith, namely to rule with him in the kingdom of God to be established on this earth at his second coming. Now, none of this is in any way difficult to understand once it's recognized that the Bible is a messianic document and Jesus is the Messiah of Hebrew prophecy. That's the key to the riddle of the New Testament, which becomes a most obscure document when read with a Gentile, non-messianic bias. Church tradition, tragically, which presents Jesus as a, quote, spiritual Messiah only, who never actually rules the world from Jerusalem, puts up an effective barrier between us and the apostles. We need to restore the messianic framework of our New Testament. We need to recognize that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Hebrew prophecy. And to be the Messiah implies that you're going to rule the world on this earth in a restored government with its headquarters in Jerusalem, with the Messiah sitting on the throne of David to be restored as all the prophets have promised it. Now, the first step towards recovery of this Hebrew messianic hope lies in the abandonment of the cherished notion that what is spiritual cannot also be social, political, or related to the earth. The fact is that the kingdom of God in the Bible, of which Jesus spoke, was spiritual and at the same time to be visible, political, and material. It was both particular and Jewish, as well as universal in its scope. The restored kingdom of David, about which the Bible talks constantly, 
will mean a new political structure for the world, with its headquarters in Jerusalem and extending its influence across the globe. Jerusalem, in the mind of Jesus, was not a location for departed spirits, but a coming international metropolis, the capital of a renewed society on the earth. Once the kingdom idea is rooted again in the Hebrew soil where it originated, it will become clear that kingdom does not mean an abstract rule in the hearts of men and women, nor does it mean an ethereal heaven for the dying, a place of disembodied souls. Far from that, the kingdom of God is to be a literal kingdom with its divinely appointed sovereign sitting on the restored throne of David in a geographical location. According to the Hebrew mind, it was in the hands of the sons of David. You find that in Second Chronicles 13, 8. The kingdom of the Lord, that is, in Hebrew times, in the Old Testament times, was said to be in the hands of the sons of David with an assured future when the Messiah once again ascended the throne of David. This is the whole point of Jesus and his mission as herald of the kingdom. He came, in fact, as he said, recruiting followers who would believe in God's messianic plan and in himself as God's executive, the Christ or the Messiah. Hence Jesus' opening salvo to the public as he inaugurated his ministry. He said the kingdom of God, promised as you know well to Israel forever, is coming. Believe it. Believe in this gospel or good news about the kingdom. Align yourselves with the hope of Israel, which, with the appearance of the Messiah, is sure to be realized. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. Such is, by implication, the effect of Jesus' words in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. The kingdom of God is at hand, he said. Repent and believe in that gospel, the gospel namely about the coming kingdom. It is that statement in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, which provides a programmatic summary of Jesus' whole mission and agenda. He is there portrayed as the herald of the greatest good news which the nation, had they been spiritually attuned to God's voice through Jesus, would have accepted joyfully. When Israel failed to heed the message of the kingdom given by the Messiah, the same gospel invitation precisely the same gospel invitation to participation in the coming kingdom went out to all the nations. This does not for a moment mean that the kingdom was postponed. The kingdom was not in abeyance. It meant only that a divinely planned extension of the present era allowed for the same kingdom invitation to go on through many generations and to all nations. Thus the Gentiles were then invited to take part in the messianic rule with Jesus when he returns. In this way, the gospel of the kingdom remains the great constant of the New Testament, the unifying factor, the one glorious message of the coming kingdom of God and Messiah's rule in that kingdom, which is to unify Jew and Gentile alike in the one body of Christ. And that body is simply a collection of believers from all nations now in preparation now in training through tribulation for participation in rulership in the coming kingdom. The kingdom of God gospel was never superseded in the New Testament. There was never a time when it could be said the gospel is now obsolete or in abeyance. The same gospel of the kingdom 
to which, of course, were added the facts about the death and resurrection of the Messiah as they happened, that same gospel of the kingdom was preached from one end of the New Testament to the other without interruption. Various popular theological systems, known, for example, as dispensationalism, have unfortunately created a considerable muddle and complication in the minds of ordinary Bible readers by introducing an extraordinarily complicated system of dispensations by which it is held that different forms of the gospel applied to different times in the New Testament. Such a theory is without foundation, and it has erected a barrier against intelligent reading of the New Testament. Once we see that there is one gospel and one gospel only across the pages of our New Testament documents, we will see that the message of Jesus is the crucial factor in conversion. One must hear Jesus either in person or through his accredited agents, the apostles. That's what Paul said in Romans 10, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by Messiah's message. The very same message which Jesus himself had brought to the public was then relayed by the apostles as they continued the kingdom gospel preaching to the public after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus to the right hand of his Father. Now, part of the offense of Jesus' message was indeed the delay of the coming of the kingdom. The death of the one claiming to be Messiah placed, unfortunately, too great a strain on the faith of some who heard Jesus preach. And so their faith collapsed, and even Jesus' closest followers faltered when he announced that he must first go to Jerusalem and die. What an absurd contradiction, they said, when the Messiah was supposed to conquer the world. But God had his own time frame for the accomplishment of the promises. And so to counteract the crushing disappointment of a dying Messiah, a supernatural vision of the future kingdom was given to the loyal few. Jesus announced that some standing in his presence would see the kingdom in their lifetime. And sure enough, six days later, they were privileged to see into the future and to glimpse the kingdom in advance of its manifestation worldwide. Jesus was seen with his face shining like the sun in the company of Moses and Elijah. What a beautiful vision of the coming kingdom of God on the earth that is. You notice that they did not see a vision of some ethereal heaven. Moses and Elijah did not appear as ghosts disembodied. What they saw, along with Jesus, was the resurrected Moses and the resurrected Elijah seen in vision prior to the actual time of the resurrection. Now, in this vision, in Matthew 17 and verse 2, we find that Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Now, to anybody who knew earlier chapters of Matthew, it would be obvious that this was a vision of the coming kingdom. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 39 and 40, we read that at the end of the age, the angels will go out as reapers, and they will gather out of the kingdom of God everything that gives offense. And the Son of Man will then send forth his angels, and they will take out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, Matthew 13, verse 41. And they will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in verse 43, the righteous will shine forth 
as the son in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Obviously then, when Jesus' face shone like the sun in Matthew 17 verse 2, we are to think of the coming kingdom in the future. And that's exactly what we found in the introduction to this marvelous transfiguration, this vision in which Jesus appeared on the earth, you will notice, with Elijah and with Moses. You see, that's the heaven, if you like, of the Bible. Heaven, in fact, is a most misleading term because the kingdom of God will be on this earth. What shall I do? The people asked Jesus to inherit the kingdom of God. They didn't say, what shall I do to go to heaven? That's the language of post-biblical times and it's most confusing. We suggest that Christians who love Jesus and the words of Jesus will want to follow his language and use his terminology. In that way we will guarantee that we're beginning to think as he thought when we use the words that he used. And so Jesus then allowed the disciples this extraordinary glimpse of the future kingdom of God in which, of course, the resurrected Elijah and Moses will appear in glory. And, of course, glory is simply a synonym for that future kingdom. We have some literature for you on this whole issue of the kingdom of God and Jesus' gospel. We invite you to call us at the telephone number to be given at the end of this program. Please request for your own study at home the book entitled The Coming Kingdom of the Messiah, A Solution to the Riddle of the New Testament. Remember in your study that Jesus was a Jew whose teaching must be understood in his own first century Jewish context. Join us again as we continue to probe the most basic questions about life and immortality as Jesus offers it to us in his good news about the kingdom of God.